Well, a couple of weeks ago, we saw God's heart for the nations as we looked at um, chapter 67 of Psalms, which is kind of a missionary psalm. And it helped us kick off the series that we're looking at as to, uh, as f- to make, we're focusing on taking the blessings of God uh, to the ends of the earth, taking from, from the song, Joy to the World, to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And, and the scope of that, what we looked at in Psalm 67, is to the nations, to the ends of the earth. And you know, it's, 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 it's no mistake that the very next chapter, so that the scope is go to the nations, reach the nations, that's what Jesus, who Jesus longs to see worship him. And then Psalm 68 has a focus on whom? Here's what Psalm 68 verses 5 and 6 says, that God is the father of the fatherless, the protector of widows is God in his holy habitation, and God settles the lonely, the solitary in a home. In other words, the method that God gives us and extends to us for reaching the nations is to bring them home to bring widows and orphans and the lonely into our houses. It's a gathering in. The orphan, the widow, the lonely, the at-risk, the immigrant, the traveler, this is the missionary practice that we participate in as a part of reaching the nations. The next couple, three weeks, here's where we're going. Today, we are talking about gathering in, gathering in. Next week, we're going to talk about generosity, our the sacrifices, the generosity that we're going to make to reach the nations. And then thirdly, we're going to look at going, November 28th, the week after Thanksgiving. We have a missionary coming to share with you about going. So we have a word for gathering in. It's a word called hospitality. Hospitality. We have as a core value at King's Chapel that we have stated that under know God, grow together, reach our world, under each of those, we have three core values for know God, grow together, and reach our world. And one of the three values under reach our world is this, is that we value as a practice at our church radically ordinary hospitality. Radically ordinary hospitality. And that's what we're going to look at again this morning. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to begin in verse 2, and then we're going to jump over to verses 12 through 16. As we look at this theme, this idea of radically ordinary hospitality this morning. Hear God's word. Pick it up in verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Drop down to verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This ends the holy reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. Well, we did a whole series on hospitality about a year and a half ago. We made a whole emphasis even during times of the the height of the pandemic on hospitality. And we were saying, yes, even in this environment, in fact, it's in this environment of a place where we're big programs and events 
can't happen, that the church can actually be restored to one of its primary practices of ministry, which is to show hospitality. Hospitality is core, it is common, and it's a critical strategic way to engage in mission no matter where you are. Whether you're doing ministry in Carrollton, Georgia, or in sub-Saharan Africa, at the core of any outreach must involve hospitality, gathering people in. You see, the front door to the home has almost always been the much wider front side door to the church. Yes, we have double doors that are the front of the church, but the much wider door to the church is through your homes, through your life, through inviting people into your home, into your, your family, into your life and enjoining them. We tell the good news by opening up our lives to people. It's how we share the gospel saying, come in and eat with us. Come in and do life with us. You can, you can say, man, I, I don't know how to make all the apologetic arguments. I, I, I struggle to make coherent discourses about the, the deep realities of God. I, I can't study all the world religions of the world and, and understand them and, and, and argue with those who hold them. But I can do this. I can make bread and I can make soup and I can listen. And I can give people my life. Envision with me what that might look like to have neighbors in your home. There's a big pot of soup or rice and beans and people from your neighborhood arrive with cheese or sour cream or chips, sweet tea or lemonade, nothing extravagant. And people sit in lawn chairs in such a haphazard way around a fire that those who are, who are there or those who walk by, they don't know whose house it is and whose house it isn't. And there are conversations happening between an international student studying at University of West Georgia and your vaguely racist neighbor who constantly comments about how immigrants are ruining our country. And there around your fireplace, something radical is happening. People are actually beginning to know each other. They're being invited in. People are beginning to love each other and care for each other. And they're invited into a fellowship, into a community, gathering in, bringing people into a family and into a home. This has been God's purposes and plans since the beginning. We were in a garden. We had a home. We, we dwelled with God, our Father. We were safe and secure. But what did we do? We ran away. And ever since then, we've been trying to seek a home, find a place for ourselves. And we are weary, and we are worn, and we live in a world where people are hungry and longing to be invited in. And that is what hospitality is, to look at the weary travelers of the world and say, come on in. This is a place you can call home. This is what we find God doing all the time. So we find Jesus doing as well. God brings the people of Israel out of Egypt. He guides them through the wilderness to what? A homeland, a place they can call them their, their, their own land. Jesus shows up and he feeds people and he sits with people and he eats with people as a primary form of ministry. He goes to the wayward of the poor and he says, come and dwell with me, walk with me. Jesus is always eating with sinners. We see it in the beautiful image of the prodigal father, the father who goes out to the son. And what does he do? He welcomes him back home and he celebrates with him and has a meal with him. And the whole story of the Bible, Bible culminates with a supper at God's table. Hospitality is the body, is the gospel embodied. And so let's review once again. Yes, we've emphasized this many times in the past, but we emphasize it again because it is a core value of our church. Let's renew, remember anew this key practice 
of our mission in this world. Hospitality. I'm going to give you three things I want to see in Hebrews chapter 13 about what it is. First, let me see the, the objects of hospitality. Who are we being hospitable to? To whom? Verse 2 says what? Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now, the most basic way to understand hospitality biblically is to simply understand the language there that's talking about in strangers. The Greek word for stranger is philozenia. Philo is the, one of the Greek words for love. Xenia means strangers. Now, the opposite of this is xenophobia, right? It is a fear of strangers or a hatred of strangers. But the call here of hospitality is a love of strangers. The clearly stated object of biblical hospitality are those who are strangers from us. And Rosaria Butterfield, who we've quoted often on the idea of hospitality in this church from her book, Gospel Comes with a House Key, says this, radically ordinary hospitality is a ministry that seeks to turn strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. Take strangers and make them friends. This is what hospitality is. Extending to strangers the quality of kindness that you would usually reserve only for those you like for your family and your friends. But in providing hospitality, the Bible most often talks about what kind of strangers, what do they most often look like, the, who, most, who are the objects of hospitality in the scriptures. Well, what do we see in Psalm 68? What do we see throughout the Bible? Those who need hospitality are the strangers. Children, orphans, widows, immigrants, poor, the sick, the lonely. In Luke chapter 14, I'll refer to back to Luke chapter 14 in a number of different ways this morning, but in Luke chapter 14, Jesus is in a conversation with some religious leaders at a feast, at a meal, and he looks at those at the table and the man who's actually throwing the party and he says, listen, don't simply invite those that you like. Don't simply invite those who are of your social standing and those of your friends, but go out and invite the poor and the lowly into your house we have done a disservice when we view hospitality as merely something that is lauded in Southern Living and by Martha Stewart. That is not the vision that is given to us in the scriptures. Luke chapter 14, verses 21 through 23, the, Jesus gives this parable. And he says, he goes out and he extends an invitation to a feast to those who are the upper class and the elite and the religious, uh, the, the religious in, the, in the community. And they all reject the invitation. And so he tells the servants in verse 21, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. I love that image. The big heartedness of your God, there's always room. Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. May be filled with who? The sick and the lowly. Philip Yancey, I think, gives a good snapshot of what this might look like, what the type of person this might be in an extreme form. He was on a trip to Nepal, and they were at a, um, a facility called Green Pastures Hospital. It was a leprosy center for those in Nepal that were stricken with this devastating disease. And they were walking along an outdoor corridor from one building to another. And he says, as they were walking down the corridor, there was out in this little lawn, just by, by, by the corridor, what he described as the most ugly looking human being he had ever seen in his life. And here's how he described this person. I noticed in the courtyard the ugliest human being I've ever seen. Her hands were bandaged with gauze. 
She had deformed stumps where she ought to have had feet, and her face showed the worst ravages of leprosy. Her nose had shrunken away so that looking at her, you could see straight through to her sinus cavities. Her eyes were covered with calluses, and they let in no life light. She was totally blind. There were scars all over her arms. This is who she was. This is who is the world's castaways. He said they walked from one building to the other, and then they, they were coming back through the corridor, and this woman, having heard them, began to move towards the corridor, the walkway that they were walking on. He said in the meantime, this creature, as he calls her, had crawled across the courtyard, the edge of the walkway, pulling herself by her elbows and dragging her body like a wounded animal. He said he was ashamed to admit that when he first saw her moving towards them, he, he was afraid that she was going to simply ask for money. But his wife, who was used to working with the impoverished and the disease, had a much more godly reaction. Without hesitation, she bent down towards this woman and she grabbed her and pulled her in. So this woman leaned against her shoulders. And as she did this, this woman began to sing a song that they did not understand the words because of the language in which she was singing it in, but they understand the tune. She was singing, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The physical therapist said the lady's name was Denmaya, and she was one of the most devoted members of their church, that every time that they would have a church service or a devotional, she would be there. The glory of Jesus is that we have a God who looks at the world, at the highways and byways, and he looks at the demias and says, that, that person is who I want in my house. I want her to sit at my dinner table. Now, does this inherently mean that God loves the financially or socially or physically impoverished more? No. But what it reflects here is the father heart of God is elicited by what? Neediness. Your neediness causes God's heart to come running towards you. The child who grieves in my house gets my attention. And so the child of this world, those who are in the highways and the byways, the impoverished and the broken, are who the image bearers who get God's longing attention because they need him so desperately. And so I, let me ask you this. Who are the needy strangers? Denmaya's case may look severe, right? Let's not hyperbolize it. Who are the strangers that you're living next to and that you work with and your children go to school with that you need to invite in? Here are some examples, not necessarily radical ones. Some may appear radical, but these are all just examples from people in our church. We have one woman in our church, she takes meals to young moms, unsolicited, not because there's some sign-up list in our church, simply because she loves to take meals to a young mom every week. We have another person in our church who goes to a jail in Douglas County every single week and shares the faith and actually has led a sexual predator to the Lord and now is discipling him. Speaking of the same vein, we have an older couple in our church who lead a Bible study of folks who cannot necessarily attend church and be a part of a normal Bible study because they are part of these sexual offenders lists. And so they need some place where they can have Christian fellowship. We have another person in our church who loves to cook, and so they have international students from UWG home, to their home for Thanksgiving. We have another young couple in our church who is actively seeking to, to adopt from Ukraine. We have one, an older man in our church who I love dearly, who cared for one of the other older members of our church for the last couple of years of his life. He would pick him up, and all he would simply do is drive him to his doctor's appointments in Atlanta, and every time he'd pick him up, he'd bring him a milkshake. 
We have those who serve with pregnancy resources and 12 for life as mentors to young moms and to young teenagers. Some of these things sound really radical, and some of them sound so, so mundane. So what is the Lord calling you to do? How is the Lord calling you to open your home, to open your life, to invite in the orphan, the widow, the immigrant? Our passage in Hebrews today says, don't neglect hospitality. Do not grow weary in doing good, brothers and sisters. Now, why would, he, why, would, why would the writer in Hebrews have to say that? Don't neglect hospitality. Probably because we are apt to neglect hospitality. Because it is hard. There is a sinful psychological force of gravity that constantly pulls our thoughts and our affections and our physical actions and how we invest our lives into ourselves and limiting our home to me and mine. Therefore, the most natural thing in the world, the most natural trajectory of your life would be the neglect hospitality. It is the path of least resistance. And therefore, you're going to have to work hard in order to engage in hospitality. You're going to have to, make, you're going to, have to put your foot in the ground and say, we will do this. We will do this. And we don't even necessarily know what it's going to cost us. But we will do this. And you recenter your, the gravity of your, of your life, not around yourself, but around others. And so hospitality will be a fight. It is not the path of least resistance. If you want a safe, manageable life, do not get involved in hospitality. But I would also recommend that you don't read your Bible either. Because it may make you uncomfortable. But this will not just simply be a fight, an internal fight to get you to begin engaging with this or re-engaging with this. Understand this, biblical hospitality will inherently require sacrifice. Sacrifice. It is going to cost you something. Verses 15 and 16 says this, let us continually offer up a what? Sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Biblical hospitality is costly because biblical hospitality follows Jesus who's willing to sacrifice I heard one, one pastor, Kevin Azell, who has adopted a number of, of children. And he was introducing one of the children that he had adopted that had a foreign name. That was, and he was introducing his child to a, you know, a, a normal Western American. And this person was struggling to understand this child's name. And he finally just looked at the person and said, let's just go with this. His name means I cost a lot. Because he cost a lot to adopt this child. If you're going to show hospitality... In a sacrificial way, you will have to sacrifice. You will have to lose comforts. You have to lose your right to be socially comfortable. You have to release your grip on your schedule. You will have to be willing. You'll have to be willing to be heartbroken. You have to be willing to be heartbroken by the very people to whom you seek to reach. I, I had lunch this week with an older couple in our church who years and years and years ago adopted two children that the, the state told them these children are violent, they are mentally unstable, and indeed it should prove to be true. And at 16 years old, both those children fled the home, and these parents hardly ever heard from them again. Years, decades afterwards. Do you think there's wounds and there's scars there? And loss and grief? Absolutely. Another couple in our church decades ago adopted transracially in the Mississippi in the 1980s. Now that's a crazy person. I've lived in Mississippi. 
And not only did this come with the normal trials and sorrows caught up in adoption, but to adopt children of another race meant they lost part of their family, for they were disowned. They were disowned. I talked this week to a young CEO staff couple that lives in another state in which they adopted two boys a couple years ago, and both their children, both of their children have RAD. And if you've ever engaged with a child that has RAD, it is a heartbreaking. You long to move towards this child, and yet their attachment is not to you. And so they say things like, you're not my dad, and you're not my mom, or I hate you, and I want nothing to do with you. And they say that at six and seven years old. Some of us may have to sacrifice a little bit less. This is kind of a funny thing. We want our home to be open in our neighborhood. And so you know what has happened? Our, our household, I don't know how, but I'll come home and there's 12 kids in my yard. And it's awesome. But here's how I've sacrificed. Three times this month, I'm a napper. I'm one of those who can walk out. You, you just, I'm like an old computer. You power me down for 15 minutes and then suddenly I start working better again. So I'd nap in the afternoons. Three times this month, I have been awoken I have been awoken by a child running into my room. Now, it is not odd for a child to run into my room and wake me up from a nap. But all three of these occasions were children that didn't belong to me. (laughs) It was kids literally just running into my room from the neighborhood. One time I had barely any clothes on. And I'm sitting there under the sheets going, what is going on as children are just running amok in my room? It will cost you something. It will mean new carpet. That new carpet is going to get stains on it. And that new couch might get ruined. Your life will feel out of control. Who would pay such a cost? Who would, who would allow their life to get so twisted up and jacked up and out of control to lose so much? Your God did. Jesus did. Hospitality, you know, as they understood it in, in, in ancient Near East, as, as Hebrews talks about this, and where this word comes up, the, the mind that, that, that an ancient Near Easterner would have had, they, they would have understand that, tr- that you invited the traveler in because travel was dangerous. There weren't necessarily hardly any inns out there. A traveler would come and they would park themselves just outside the city gates where the markets were or a well was, and they would wait for someone in the city to come out and invite them in. Now, the member of the city actually had a responsibility in order to protect the rest of the town And when they invited someone in. They needed to make sure they were not bringing into the city a thief or an enemy of the city. And so they would interview this person, and they would, they would talk to them about what their business was. And once they were satisfied that this person was not a foe, they would then bring this person in, and then they would do this. They would wash their feet, and they would feed them and they would give up their bed for them. Now, this is what is in mind of a Hebrew when they think of the word hospitality. Showing kindness to strangers by going out of the city at their risk to consider whether, who this person is and to bring that stranger into their home to provide for them. Now, this brings us back to Hebrews 13. Show hospitality, it says in verse 2. And then the writer, after giving a bunch of other instructions in verses 3 all the way down through verse 11, says this. He roots his instructions in this, verse 12. So also, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify people through his own blood. Do you understand what he's pointing to there? That the most radical form of hospitality we see is Jesus going outside the gate. Where does Jesus get thrown outside the gate? He's put on trial, and they take him out and on a road up to a hill called Golgotha that is outside the city of Jerusalem. And it's there he's put on a cross. In fact, Jesus actually, from the beginning, we're about to celebrate his incarnation. He was born without a home. No, no home. 
And he said this during his ministry, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was, in other words, a homeless wanderer. He died outside the gate. He thrown out and killed. And on the cross, he said, I have been forsaken. In other words, what was Jesus willing to do? What is Hebrews 13 saying about the fullness of Jesus' hospitality? Is I am willing to give up my home so that you may be brought in. I'll go outside the gate so that I will make strangers sons of God. And here we find the holy logic behind those who are willing to pay the cost and willing to sacrifice to make their home belong to other people. Christianity comes to life when you realize that you are the one who has experienced radical hospitality. Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. Again, we go back to this scene where Jesus is is at this meal and he says this. He said to the man who had invited him to this meal, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in to return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. And then Jesus gives the parable that we referred to earlier. Where the socially elite and the religious devout and the cool kids in town won't come in. They make all excuses. They are too good and too busy and too distracted to come into the feast. And it's then that the master says, go get the poor and the lame and bring them into my house. And therefore, if you have been brought into the house of God, who are you in the story? Then you must have been the poor and the lame and the outsider and the stranger. The logic that Jesus is providing this, that those who invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind to the table are those who know that they were once poor, that they were lame, that they were strangers far from God. You see, the God-centered motivation for showing radical hospitality to strangers has been given from the earliest of commandments about hospitality by pointing back to God's care for those he is calling to now be hospitable to others. You see, this is what Jesus said to the people of Israel. Here's his logic in Leviticus chapter 19, all the way back there. It says this, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. Not just that, though. The stranger who sojourns with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Why? What's the logic? For you were once strangers in the land of Egypt. You were the stranger because you had run from God. This is who we were. This is your story. We were strangers from God because from the beginning, mankind, we've run from God. We've run outside the gate. And what did you deserve? For the king to come and say, you keep him outside that gate. Never let that man back into my city and into my house. You leave him outside. Let the wolves and the robbers and the slaves have, slavers have their way with him. But he didn't do that. When you had estranged yourself from God, when you had become his enemy, when you had become something dangerous and something desperate, Jesus was sent outside the gate to a hill called Golgotha to die so that you might come into Christ's home, to welcome you home. Jesus became a homeless infant with no place to lay his head, a man who ministered without a house so that you may be brought into the heavenly father's home for all of eternity. And so that's who you are. That's who you are. We sing it often, right? In the song, Come Thou Fount, Jesus sought me when a stranger. Wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger bought me with his precious blood. So what makes hospitable people are those who've been willing to humble themselves, to acknowledge that they needed the blood of Christ to bring them back in, to say how desperately they need to be brought into the feast, 
And I want us to say this, King's Chapel, I would say you understand the gospel. So many of you have done so. I, I can't tell you how proud I am of you, how I get to brag on you. I'm inspired by who you are and how you live. So many of you are doing heavy lifting, and it's hard, isn't it? It's really, really hard. John and Jen Broom, they have three, of, three biological children, and they're in the process of adopting a, a little girl who's been a foster baby in their home. And in the middle of that, they've taken on another child. This has probably come to the detriment of their sanity. It's probably hurt their biological children in some ways. Remember a couple weeks ago I said, you know what my children need? They need a chance to die. To die. And so, you know, I have children in my household who remember back to the day when there was only two of them. And they go, those were good days. <laughs> and I have a tendency to agree with them. Remember my wife and I sitting at a, at a, at a, at a table in a restaurant. And it, was just, it was just Lala and Cade. And they were these compliant, sweet and they were just happily playing. And we were like, we've made it. We're free. We could, go to, we could go to a restaurant and we're not being yelled at. We can't go to a restaurant without looking like crazy idiots ever anymore. They've had to die. And so have we. Others, you know, there's been those who have in our church who've tried to do preemptive foster care. Set up a, a, a ministry for, for years only to come up with frustration after frustration because this is hard work. The enemy is, wants us to not be a part of this. And so let me just say this. I want to give you, give you a little bit of encouragement from Hebrews 13. For those who are doing so good, and yet I don't want you to be weary in doing good. Three things I see here, real brief, and some encouragement on biblical hospitality. Be encouraged. You are serving Christ Jesus. Why do we do this? Do we do this for fame? <laughs> this will not make you famous. No, we do this for him and for his glory. I love, there's a story of Alistair Begg. Some of you know Alistair Begg. He's a well-known uh, pastor and preacher in Cleveland, Ohio. He's, a, he's from Scotland, and so he's got a, a his, you know, I just, if God would just, you know, I'm a Presby- I, it's hard enough being a Presbyterian. And God hasn't given me a Scottish accent. If you're going to be a Presbyterian, I feel like when you come out of seminary, you should at least have a Scottish accent. It would at least, you would add some cool factor to who we are. But he's a Scottish Presbyterian. But when he was training under a mentor in Scotland, they would, on Sundays, he and this other, this mentor pastor, would, older man would go into a nursing home and they would preach. And he, they would preach, and you know what would happen? The same thing that some of you do. All these older people would just immediately fall right to sleep because they're, they're tired and they've heard all the sermons. So he asked his mentor, aren't we, just, aren't we just wasting our time here? And this old minister said in his great Scottish accent, Alistair, I think you have forgotten Ultimately, we don't do it for them. We do it under him. We do it under him. We need to remember that. Write a check under him. Practice hospitality under him. Work on your Scottish accent under him. (laughs) Remember how personal your hospitality is to God. You see what it says in verse 2? Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Verse 15, through him, then, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. This is the fruit of the lips acknowledging his name. His name. The most famous text on hospitality is Matthew 25, where Jesus says, I was a stranger among you, and you didn't feed me. I was a prisoner among you, and you didn't visit me. 
Those words are so famous that we easily miss the point. Jesus is not saying that in welcoming strangers, you are being like me. Jesus identifies himself with the stranger. He says, I am the stranger. Jesus says, when you welcome the weak and the wounded and the sick of this world, you are welcoming me. You see, the orphan in this world has a face. The immigrant has a face. The lonely, dying person in hospice has a face. The difficult but neglected child in your neighborhood has a face, and it is the face of a Galilean carpenter, for they are made in the very image of God. And every act we do to the least of these, we do it to him. And therefore, understand this. There are many, there are many people that you will seek to help, and they will reject your help. But we don't do it for that reason. We do it to serve him. And whenever you serve him in that way, he receives it and brings blessings in 10,000-fold. Second, be encouraged. You're near Christ. Notice something. You will not only serve Christ when you serve strangers with biblical hospitality, but you will experience Christ more deeply as you suffer and labor and hurt and sacrifice because of your labors in hospitality. Look what it says in verse 13. Therefore, let us go out to him outside the camp, and bear the reproach he endured. Where does Jesus reside? In the places of sacrifice. The Lord provides daily bread, the daily bread of his presence and joy to those in the midst of kingdom struggle. You experience more of him. Let's give it, say it, flip it from the opposite side. John Piper says this, I thought it was a profound quote. He said, the joy of receiving God's hospitality actually decays and dies if it doesn't flourish in our own hospitality to others. When we practice hospitality, we become conduits of God's hospitality instead of self-decaying cul-de-sacs. John Piper's argument here is that where we receive the hospitality of God's kindness and grace and do not extend it to others, our own experience of God's gracious hospitality for us will become dull to us. It will become dull. It will shrivel Our joy in the Lord can actually be cut off by not extending hospitality to others. But the opposite is true. That when you do, that yes, as you're extending yourself and you're tired and you're exhausted, you know what you find there? God is with you. That you find in your heart a longing to know him more deeply and you go to find deeper reserves in Jesus and he meets you in that place. And as God has invited us into the beauty of life in Christ, we now extend that invitation to others. And as we do, he promises us to experience his joy and his presence. Third thing I want to encourage you with is this. Be encouraged. You will see Christ's city. Verse 14. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Your efforts will be abused and misused. Your efforts will be disregarded. You may not be thanked. Often it will seem like your great efforts are to no avail, to no avail. And you'll look, you'll see no fruits. And in fact, you'll look at your efforts and you'll go, you know what? I feel like all this has done is drag out more sin and more weakness out of me. I, I've tried to do hospitality and I do it so badly. You know, the number one revealer of my sin has been this, adoption. It's the number one thing that has dragged sin and weakness out of me. So I've, we, we look at it and we go, 
What's the point? Where's the fruit? I stink at this. How could God do anything with me? I'll give you this story. Jim Peterson, he's a written a well-known evangelism books, talks about a friend, a story of a friend named Mario with whom he had studied the Bible for years. Mario, before Mario became a Christian, he was a Marxist. And he was an intellectual. And Jim spent four years laboring through intellectual arguments with this man. But a couple years, though, Mario eventually becomes a believer. And a couple years after his conversion, he was hanging out with Mario. And Mario finally said, you know what, what really made me decide to become a Christian? Mar- and, and Peterson threw, thought of all their Bible studies and all their philosophical discussions. And Mario's reply, though, took him re- by surprise. He said, remember the first time I stopped by your house? We were on our way someplace, and you invited me in to have a bowl of soup with you and your family. And as I sat observing you, your wife and your children, and how you related to each other, I asked myself, will I ever have a relationship like this with my fiancé? And I realized that the answer was never. I concluded I had to become a Christian for the sake of the survival of my future family. And then it opened up the four years of discussion. But Peterson said he did remember the occasion when Mario came by his house and when he sat and had soup for his family. And what he remembered was this, that his children behaved terribly and that he was a poor father. And yet Mario saw the grace of Christ binding Jim's family together. Peterson comments, our family was unaware of its influence on Mario. God had done his work through our family without us even knowing it. We tend to see the weakness in our lives and ministries, and our reaction is recoil at the thought of letting outsiders come close enough to see us as we really are. Even if our assessment about our own mess is accurate, it is my observation that any Christian who is sincerely walking with God, that in spite of all their flaws, and sometimes because of their flaws, is reflecting something of Jesus Christ. We look at our labors and we see the lack of fruit and we see our are overwhelmed by our failures and our weakness. We are grieved by our sins that it brings out. We are left paralyzed by the scope of the needs we see in the world. It feels like spitting in the wind, doesn't it? Spitting in the wind in the onslaught of brokenness and sorrow of this world. Seems like the, 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 as soon as we do something good, we leave Afghanistan and now what's going to happen? All that work, or just new dams of brokenness will break open. But the mighty truth to the faithful church is this, that God is working, the King is on the move through you, and he is working as we wait. He is working in our sufferings. He is working in our failings. He's working in our weak efforts. And one day, a new city in a new world will be fully and finally revealed. And so do we do. So we labor on. So we labor on until one day at the end of all things, we experience the fullness of God's hospitality as he welcomes us with arms wide open to his home and into his everlasting feast together. So King Chapel will end with the words of one of the 20th century's greatest hosts, a man named Francis Schaeffer, who hosted literally thousands and thousands of people at a place that came to be known as the Bree. Schaeffer said this, don't start with a big program. Don't look to create some big budget at your church. Simply begin. Start personally and start in your home. I dare you to start being hospitable. I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, I am am preaching to the choir. Lord, this is a church that has taught me how to be hospitable. 
It has been so kind and gracious and forgiving to me. It has served me, my family meals when we didn't expect it and provided us financial provision when we needed it. This is a body that has adopted not just one or two, but tens, twenties, and thirties, and forty, many children. This is a church that is, extends itself and often is so wounded and worn, they come crawling back with their wounds. And then they go back out again. So, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be so gracious to remind us again of the tender, fatherly love of God. That those in this room who have extended themselves deeply in hospitality and they're tired, <laughs> and Lord, they feel like the infirmed now. They are walking with a limp. Lord, would they be reminded once again that, Lord, their limp, their limp, their neediness as they extend themselves causes the heart of God to move towards them. That they would hear the invitation of the Father to come sit at your feet. And, Lord, would you fill them up again by the power of your Spirit, fill them up again with a renewed joy in Jesus. And would you fill us up again once, once more with the hope of your kingdom come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.